This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 137, and today I sat down with Liz Whitman, the founder and CEO of Exponent Beauty. Here's a harsh fact I just learned from her. The best anti-aging skincare products actually have an aging problem. Liz actually commissioned lab research to test the top-selling clinical skincare products and found they lost almost half of their actives in a mere six weeks. Isn't that crazy? This inspired her to build Exponent Beauty, which is the first skincare system that fully preserves active ingredients for peak effectiveness. Their patented refillable dispenser system creates up to five different freshly dosed serums that are all dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to benefit fine lines, wrinkles, brightness, radiance, and firmness, all the things we love, right? Liz and I talked about what it was like growing up in New York City as an only child, to building an apparel business with a friend before earning her MBA from Harvard, to working for American Express and Beauty Bar, to building her second startup, Manicube, which was acquired by the Red Door by Elizabeth Arden, to becoming CMO and having an aha moment, which inspired her to reimagine what truly effective skincare could look like. I hope you enjoy this inspiring episode, and if you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to click subscribe, tell your friends, and you can check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Hi, Liz. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm so excited to hear your story and building Exponent. Thanks so much for your time today. Of course. Well, I'm excited to be here, Lee, so thank you for having me. Absolutely. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from San Francisco. That's where we're headquartered. And I'm from New York originally, but I moved here about four years ago. Okay. And so where in New York are you from? I'm, I'm from the city. Oh, city, city, born and raised city. No, we exist. <laughs> yeah. I think I've had a few other city dwellers on the show. Whereabouts in New York? I grew up on the Upper East Side. Great. So what was childhood like growing up in the city? Gosh, I get this question all the time because I, I think know. people are, again, are just like, how does Fascinated. that work? <laughs> yeah, it's like you're so cultured. You're like ahead of everybody by a lot of years, I feel like, at a young age. I Yes. I, I mean, I loved it. Such a high energy city. So much to do. Probably my athleticism suffered because of it. <laughs> not not a ton of facilities to run around in, um, but certainly a lot of arts and theater and culture. And again, with that energy, I think that has contributed to kind of a core tenet of mine, which is I sort of feel like I have two speeds, fast forward and stuff. That's hilarious. Yeah, it is very fast paced in New York City. I lived there for many years. Love it. And so when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually was really interested in math and science uh, and wanted to go into environmental chemistry. Wow, that's pretty awesome. I, I definitely was not thinking anything about that when I was a kid. I probably didn't know what that was. <laughs> I it was it was pretty unusual. It was sort of balanced out with this passion for the arts too. So there was also a part of me that wanted to be a photographer, and I interned with a photographer studio when I was in high school in the city as well. And I feel like I've always been sort of inconsistently struggling between creative and analytical. 
That's funny. Where does that come from? Do you, are your parents is like one an artist and one's a scientist? Like what do your parents do? It's similar sort of spread. Yeah. My grandmother actually, who was a huge influence on my life was a tremendous artist and she, she really nurtured that for me. And then I would say both my parents are pretty analytical. Did you have siblings growing up? I did not. Just me. Only child. What's it like growing up as an only child? I have a younger sister. I'm always curious what it, what it's like without a sibling. I mean, I think I really appreciated that my parents, you know, talked to me like an adult from an early age, right? And even just listening to them talk and sort of observing and soaking it all up, I think was, you know, fascinating and probably led to a lifelong learning mentality. But yeah, I mean, certainly lonely. Um, And actually, arts and crafts kind of came into play for that. So you don't have a sibling, so you don't have just like a playmate running around at all times. So thinking about, you know, projects and things you can do on your own as well. Yeah, no. So you're not like looking to play tag, but you're looking to, you know, sit down (laughs) and do some something crafty. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. And so I know you went to Harvard. Why did you choose Harvard? Obviously, it's an amazing school. But what kind of did you want to study? And why did you choose that school? Yeah, no, obviously an amazing school. Um, Boston's not so, so far away from New York. So never looked at uh, schools like too, too far away from my family. And just figured that given this sort of conflict between the analytical and the creative and not really knowing which way I wanted to fall, going to a school with, you know, a ton of different academic opportunities would be useful. When I got there, I did think that I would be on the science path. So I started taking a lot of chemistry classes freshman year. Problem is, at such a large school, you're sort of not getting the attention from the professors. These are large format classes, mostly taught by TAs. And eventually, I just figured that just from a liberal arts standpoint, like you you weren't really taking advantage of what the college had to offer. So I ended up uh, shifting and studying history instead. So complete 180. And history is amazing. I mean, just storytelling in general, understanding causality, human psychology coming into play as well. And so absolutely loved doing that. And what were some of the first couple jobs that you had growing up or, you know, also along with that jobs, but do you, when you look back, was there anything entrepreneurial about your childhood that you look back and you're like, I was, I was kind of entrepreneurial as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I think the crafting actually sort of led to um, a bunch of sort of early entrepreneurial opportunities. So fourth grade, I actually started my first business in air quotes, if you will, which was in fourth grade at the most popular sort of game running around school was jacks. Did you ever play jacks? You throw the ball up in the air and you grab the jacks off the ground. Mm-hmm. Right. Like a yeah, schoolyard yeah. game. Yeah. Well, was it the whole thing with like pogs? Isn't that kind of like, you know what I'm saying? Those little... I'm dating myself a little bit. I was a little bit like before the pogs okay. <laughs> um, craze, but yes. Yeah. So Jack's similar concept been around for a long time. Um, and at least at my school, it was very popular. And there really was like only one brand of Jack's, which meant that everyone's Jack's bags looked exactly the same. And so people were getting confused kind of whose was what. And so I ended up actually sewing a bunch of Jack's bags out of material that my grandmother had left over. She had just made new curtains in her apartment and I was selling those uh, at the school. That is so cool. That's such a good idea. It was fun. You know, it was like, okay, this is going to help. How much were you charging the kids? You know, honestly, I need to call my mother. I knew you were going to ask me that. And I was like, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm like, so what was your rev model here? Oh, yeah, like, exactly. you know, what were your what margins? Were your margins? And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How profitable was this business? Totally. No. That's awesome. But it sounds like you were able to identify a need, um, something that people were interested in, and you were able to sell it pretty easily to your your friends. Yeah. And I had zero cost of goods because Granny gave me the fabric for free. So first backer. There you go. First backer for a business. First investor. <laughs> That's funny. And so what were some of your first jobs when you were in you know high school or college or internships that you had? Yeah. Well, As I mentioned, after I made the shift to history, um, I sort of fell into kind of the typical path for a history major in good standing, uh, which was the belief that I wanted to become a lawyer, since that's sort of the logical next step. And so I actually clerked at a law firm my junior year of college before, before my senior year, 
while I was studying for the LSAT. And in clerking, something awesome that I'm completely grateful for happened, which is I just realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. So chatting with like the female partners who were sadly few and far between at the time, but just having lunch and sort of understanding what their lives look like, you know, huge amount of respect, obviously, for what they do. But I was like, I'm not really sure that this is what I want. And I was incredibly bored that summer. I remember just being so, so bored every single day. And that's when this opportunity came my way that I was, certainly wasn't expecting, which is my best friend from college who was interning at a fashion uh, house who wanted to be a designer, uh, was telling me that he needed to put a portfolio together in order to apply to design school. Uh, and I got really excited about it and started you know, talking to him about it. And then I was like, hey, how about I help you? He had to create samples. We were going to need to get a photo shoot together for him and really just started as like a fun project and something to like think about. Anyway, the line was just absolutely beautiful. And eventually I turned to him and I said, you know, you created all these samples. Like we have physical goods. We should sell them. Like, you know, make some money back um, from, from what you had to put into this. And so we ended up actually starting a fashion line uh, the summer before our senior year of college and running it for a couple of years. Senior year, we were going Boston to New York to go to New York Fashion Week and to meet with distributors and retailers and our press people were in New York. And so kind of fell ass backwards into an entrepreneurial endeavor that I never expected to be in. I never expected to be in fashion or apparel. I never expected to be you know, writing a thesis at school while trying to run a business, um, any of that. And that kind of kicked off you know, my sort of, you know, shift in direction when I decided, okay, law school is not really what I want to do. And that's when I applied to business school. Interesting. So wait, what happened to the business? Yeah. So yeah, we ran it for a couple of years. Like I said, we participated at Fashion Week. We sold direct to consumer through trunk show models. This was before you had e-commerce sites and DTC in general. And we ended up closing down about two years later for him to go to design school and for me to go to business school. We never really got like full distribution or critical mass, but it was a nice little lifestyle business to run for a little while. And even more so a great learning opportunity, right? <sighs> you learn so much from your first business. <laughs> so it turns out like you learn so much more by like doing, right? Than, than just sort of, you know, in a classroom. And so that was unbelievable. Yeah. And this is before you got your MBA, right? Oh, yeah. This is before I graduated college. Yeah. Um, oh, right, right. Even yeah. your bachelor's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's always um, interesting to me because I, you know, I, I I had an investor who was a professor, I think at USC it was, and he asked me to come speak once to his class of MBA grads or students. And I remember like, you know, a lot of the students seemed like it, I, doing is so different than just sitting and learning in the class. And I'm always so curious after that experience, like what percentage of MBA grads actually go into being an entrepreneur? I don't know. I feel like it's low. <laughs> I, I think I think it's historically been low. I'd like to think that it's um it's creeping up there with like more hands-on programming. So at HBS, for instance, this was after my time, but I I know I you know I'm sort of part of that network, so I kind of check in on what they're doing. They now have more um, sort of hands-on opportunities for people to actually like work on a business plan, go to the innovation lab, um, participate in the business plan competition, and things that I think are a little more practical and a little bit more, you know, tactical and, and worldly um, as opposed to you know academic. So I'd like to think that you know these schools are going to to start giving more useful practical tool. Cause you kind of almost got like an, a, a, um, I like to think of people that start a business and it doesn't even really matter how far you take it. If you're selling something to customers over a sh whatever amount of time and you've built a business, you've grinded it out, you've had tough challenges. Like that's a, that's like an accelerated MBA in itself in a lot of ways. And you kind of did that. And then you also got your MBA. So I feel like you got both of those two worlds. Like it was almost icing on the cake of what you had already learned doing it. Totally. Yeah, it was it was a pretty unusual path. So when I got to business school, I was 23. So I was, I think, the fifth youngest in the class and one of a handful of entrepreneurs who started there. And again, now I think it's shifted because um, this is way back when. 
but yeah, it was it was mostly sort of your traditional kind of consultants, investment bankers, private equity folks um, making up the class. So I'm very, very like grateful for that. At the same time, there was a whole bunch of just sort of standard stuff that I needed to learn. Like I had never taken an accounting class. I had never taken an operations class, you know? And so a bunch of my classmates had sort of, you know, done things around those functions and were sort of masters of them. Meanwhile, I got a lot out of it, the actual content of the classes themselves because I had been a history major undergrad, right? Right. I forgot that part. You actually had, you didn't really have like the business foundation classes before diving into the MBA. (laughs) So it was like, just, I did everything sort of, yeah, reversed. Does that mean you got to skip calculus? I feel like I talk about calculus all the time because I I literally hate calculus, but I think you dodged that bullet, didn't you? You dodged that one probably with history. Yeah, I did. I mean, I I certainly did calculus in high school, but yes, Mm. I did not have to do it in college under a history major. Right. Which makes sense. But also is like, oh my gosh, I think a lot of business grads would be like so jealous. (laughs) You have to skip that, (laughs) go straight to the MBA, learn all the good stuff that's actually really valuable and uh, get to work after that. So you've, you, you know, fast forward through that, you've had an incredible career and I want to just be sensitive of time. You've had, uh, you've been like head of marketing for beautybar.com. You're a co-founder of Manicube. So that was your second company. Yes. Manicube was my second company, which I founded with my co-founder, Katina, who you've interviewed for her amazing brand. I was going to say, I was like, wait a minute, you're a co-founder. Yeah, you know her. (laughs) Katarina from Costarina, no? Correct, yes. Katarina is her her full name. Uh, Her nickname is Katina. She's incredible. Just such an A-plus human being, and I'm obsessed with her products. Everyone should check those out. It's really good. Really good olive oil. Yeah, I'm a fan of her and the brand. And for those listening, if you haven't checked it out, uh, we'll have to give you the episode number in the show notes, but definitely tune in to listen to Katarina, the co-founder and CEO of Costarina. Costarina, that's what she said. It's like a C, but they spell it with a K. So I pronounce it wrong sometimes, but yes, it's Costarina, right? Correct. Yes. It's a mashup of her and her husband's name. Yes. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's from Greece and she goes to Greece every summer. Yes, she's awesome. So wonderful. So you guys built this incredible company together, sold it, I think, to the Red Door by Elizabeth Arden, right? That's correct. Yeah, so three and a half years into Manicube, uh, we sold to the Red Door. That was the fall of 2015. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you cannot balance personal and professional life. We actually signed the LOI for the deal the week before I got married. So that wow. was a crazy week. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and big props to both, you know, but also my husband uh, for staying mm-hmm. kind of calm, cool and collected during that time. So you're saying this was the acquisition piece. You're doing paperwork over the, right before your wedding. Yeah. I, exactly. I totally feel you on that. I was doing paperwork, <laughs> um, basically literally like Christmas day, Christmas Eve. I was up for like so many hours just reviewing paperwork, legal stuff for the acquisition of wear away. (laughs) I remember thinking like, this is insane. I, I, you know, in all the years I've worked on this company, I I actually (laughs) got to have the holiday a little off, (laughs) but this is not, this is no joke. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so the, the intertwine of, of, you know, how, how your business affects your, your actual life is just something that's part of it moves as fast as you move basically yeah (laughs) yeah so if you move slow it will maybe never happen because also things happen with momentum you know right it can fizzle easily so you gotta strike while iron's hot no matter if it's your wedding (laughs) or Or Christmas Christmas. (laughs) yeah and so you became CMO at the Red Door you know you've got this incredible marketing background what are some I guess you know insights you can share with those that are listening about your background and maybe how it's helped you and build your business and building your business. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I feel very fortunate and just mostly a serial entrepreneur, right? This mm-hmm. is now my third business. Um, and Which so is we like, about... well, I mean, that's all, that's all, like a lot already. Okay. Most people, it's so much to go through. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's kind of like saying, I love pain so much that I'm going to do this three times. Like totally. Yes. <laughs> I joke that like, that makes me a masochist, but right. that's for over drinks um, one day. <laughs> um, yeah. 
But, uh, you know, I think, again, we talked about learning by doing, and obviously entrepreneurship is, is 100% that, and so I feel very fortunate there. And then on the other side, I've had some very traditional uh, roles as well at larger companies. So started off my career actually at American Express, very, very large product marketing focused company. Um, and really there, I think what I took away the most was just the incredible focus on customer service uh, and loyalty, right? And and then fast forward to Beauty Bar and Quincy, which is where I met Katina, by the way. Um, you know, great best in class e-com company, really taught me sort of the basics of like LTV to CAC and where are we like getting, you know, scalable acquisition channels. It was also a really special time there where it was prior to the Amazon acquisition and you just had really high potential folks working together very, very closely, very work hard, play hard. So tribal culture of sort of tech startups kind of seeped into my brain as well. And then all the way to the Red Door, obviously large traditional beauty brand. Uh, Elizabeth Arden built a beauty empire in this country before women had the right to vote. I mean, that's like an incredible story. Unfortunately, one the brand was not telling as frequently as I would hope. And so after the acquisition, I spent the first six months actually just integrating the manicure business uh, into Red Door. And that was a lot of tech integration, quite frankly. And then after the six-month mark, took over the chief marketing officer role. And then about a year later, I uh, was promoted to president uh, of the division. So sitting over all of our operations as well as our demand side. And I'm super grateful for that because my entire career had been building brands from scratch and you know smaller sort of environments. And this was the opportunity to take an old heritage brand and reinvent it. The Red Door, Elizabeth Arden, um, these have you know huge brand awareness, low brand relevance within a younger demographic. Um, and so that was just a whole other set of challenges. And then, of course, challenges around uh, you know, service-led business. Hospitality, obviously, is very HR-driven. And so, again, my fascination with what people and culture can actually do in terms of driving impact in a business, I had a lot of opportunity to kind of play around with that. That's amazing. And so what inspired you, you know, you were also an investment partner at um, X Factor Ventures. So what kind of made you want to start another business and what was the inspiration <laughs> behind Exponent? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the, the aha moment really actually did come from my time at the Red Door. Essentially, I was in an oversized terry cloth robe that no one looks good in um, at our Fifth Avenue flagship location. Uh, and I was getting a facial from our master esthetician, a fabulous woman named Nina. Uh, Nina uh, comes from Russia. She moved here in the early 80s. She trained in the traditional Elizabeth Arden aesthetics program. And she was getting me up to speed on our protocols and our products and our processes and spent a lot of time telling me that the reason why we mix our masks and our treatments and our serums fresh before applying them to guests is because beneficial ingredients in skincare like retinol and vitamin C and acids are super fragile and degrade rapidly once exposed to air, light, and water. So she's talking about this. She's going into details. I'm sitting there. It should be a relaxing experience. And then my brain just like is going a mile a minute to the next logical question, which is if that's true, how effective can premixed retail products actually be? And so embarrassed to say that that oh shit, maybe there's something here, here, uh, swirled around my brain for a couple of years. I didn't do anything with it. Fast forward, I stepped down from my role to move to San Francisco for personal reasons and had some time on my hands to figure out what I wanted to do next. And because of the masochism, I did drive down, <laughs> dive down the rabbit hole. Um, but that rabbit hole was not, oh, I'm going to go create a skincare brand. It actually just started with a simple question, which was how big a problem is this really? And so step one on my journey was buying the top selling clinical skincare products on the market, products you've absolutely heard of, might have tried, might be using right now, I don't know. And I sent them to an independent lab to test the concentration of the active on day one through day 60. Headline is 60% of the products I tested didn't even have a starting concentration that would be beneficial for the skin. They're just fairy dusted in there. And then across all the products, they lost almost half half their potency in a mere six to eight weeks. So if you think about it, yeah, if you're spending $200 on a one ounce, you know, serum dropper bottle, 
and you're sort of eking it out over three to four months, which is what's typical, um, you're basically not putting anything super effective on your face uh, pretty oh my rapidly. Gosh, so I know, I know. I should come with a warning sign. Um, you know, during that period when I was doing all this research, it was also after I had just moved to San Francisco, right? So I was also trying to make friends and meet new people. And I would go out and people would ask me what I was doing and I would tell them this, you know, this revelation. And you could just see the like disappointment on people's faces. And I was like, I'm never going to make friends. I'm such a Debbie Downer with these, with this news. So anyway, things are looking up now, now that I actually have a solution for it. But those were some dark problematic days, I would say. Right. To tell like all these people, (laughs) sorry, you've been punked, you know? Exactly. Exactly. People love hearing that. (laughs) Um, and you know, the, the, the judgment on like, oh my gosh, we spent all this money on these things, you know, and, well, and so, on brands that they trust and, yeah. you know, advertising they buy into and all of these totally. things. I mean, I wasn't even aware. I would never even think of that. Right. And you were able to kind of, like you said, have that aha moment at, uh, the red door. And so, and it's interesting too, that there was a large gap between hearing that and thinking about it and then actually diving into it. Because I think what happens is a lot of people either in their stories, aren't honest that there was a big gap like that, or, you know, I think a lot of times there is a gap though. Like I, you know, with these aha moments of like a spark of curiosity, it's easy also to not follow it. Yes. It's easy also to just say, ah, Yeah, I guess that's something like, and just not scratch that itch. And I think the difference is that entrepreneurs can't help but scratch that itch, you know, because you know that when you do, and there's something there, it's the most exhilarating feeling to feel like you have this like nugget of gold information that no one else really knows that you just uncovered and you're going to do something about it. And that's such an exciting thing. I think that's right. And I think when people do ask me for advice for people who are sort of curious about entrepreneurship, I I always say that it is a very specific personality type who sees these open doors and these opportunities as they come. Like great example being, you know, my friend who needed to put a portfolio together for his grad school application. That could have just been like a fun project to help out with. Didn't have to turn into something. And yeah, so, so you'll know it when you know it though. Like this thing just sat in the back of my head and I was like, there's something to this. And then of course, you know, in parallel, I was learning just so much more about skincare and products and skin in general from our fabulous estheticians. And so all of those learnings probably made that pop even more by the time the two years had had kind of passed. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills and compostable packets that you can get to delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind, am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. 
Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So before we kind of dive into the product and how it all works, what were some of the steps that you had to take? Now you now you realize this really interesting data point. That's like the very beginning, right, of everything. And so what were some of the first steps that you took to actually start building the product, creating the brand? And launching the business. Yeah. And I'm like breathing and exhaling because it ended up being a much longer R&D journey than I probably expected um, in the beginning. So step one was uncovering, you know, kind of the magnitude of the problem. Step two was, okay, how do we solve it? And so first step was to go out to cosmetic chemists and product developers and find somebody who would want to partner uh, on a solution. Not so shockingly, although I was sort of naive not to realize that this would happen, a lot of cosmetic chemists didn't even want to engage with the premise, right? Because if you think about it, they've been spending their entire career making the products that I am saying actually aren't delivering um, the way that they're supposed to. And so a lot of contract manufacturers who you know produce very, very large familiar brands just did not want to engage. And... Yeah, anyway, some interesting stories about specifics there. Uh, anyway, so I had to find very specific people, specific being highly, highly experienced in the industry, but with the ability to think outside the jar is the way we like to say it. And partnered up with an incredible product developer who you know, created the Dr. Paracon brand, uh, Biosense, Rodan and Fields, just incredible skincare knowledge. Um, and I really credit her, honestly, with with figuring out how how to solve this. And so the solution on the formula side, of course, is a two-part system. So what we've innovated on is by powderizing the antioxidants, so powderizing your vitamin C, powderizing your retinol, we can keep them inert. So they're definitely not degrading and they're not exposed to air, light, and water. And then the consumer can combine that in the moment with a hyaluronic acid hydrator and actually activate it into a serum that you can use. And so you know you're getting the optimal dose of the active every single time you use it. And so that sounds exciting, but it turns out getting a powder and a liquid to actually you know, mix quickly into something of a texture that you would actually wanna put on your face is wildly complex. And so again, our product developer is just a total genius for having figured it out. The resulting texture is just like a really nice gel-like serum texture. It's not watery. It's somewhere between like a watery serum and sort of a lotion. It feels really, really nice and really hydrating. And so that was a huge bulk of, of R&D time um, on the formulas. And then uh, actually similar amount of energy spent on the packaging and the experience because nobody is going to mortar and pestle a bunch of stuff in their bathroom with powder flying around. It's a whole big mess. So I uh, worked with industrial designers and engineers to create our packaging system. Our packaging system is really like the world's sexiest dispenser, to be frank. It's not a device. It's not an electronic. It doesn't plug into a wall. But what it does is it operates somewhat similar to like a salt grinder where you push down and twist just like you'd open a medicine cap. And that actually doses a certain amount of powder and a certain amount of liquid in a specific ratio so that we can deliver that optimal concentration every time. But that was a huge journey. I think we went through 50 different iterations on packaging prototypes. There are 22 components in the entire system, so very complex. And of course, we have you know utility patents on, on the final outcome, which is really exciting. That's amazing. And so I have it here. And I, when I first received this product, I was like, okay, I'm going to wait for the assembly to talk to Liz. Because I don't like reading directions and B, it's way more fun to have the founder walk me through and kind of understand the, that there's an assembly involved, which is interesting because, you know, when you're used to just getting a beauty product, you just open it up and start using it. There's really nothing special. There's no assembly, but this, you get both a fun kind of assembly 
piece and a great product at the end. So I'm excited to check it out. Yeah. And, and a further just sort of proof point worth mentioning is all of our formulas have been clinically tested with measured instrumentation, not just like consumer perception surveys with incredible results. So I really stand by the fact that we are able to actually deliver a product uh, that will have great benefit for the skin. You know, I've been in the industry for however long. I don't need to be just pulling down a library formulation and force feeding it to you. I wanted to do something really different. Yeah. And just quick question, because I'm curious, why are these big, you know, very respected brands that you're talking about that you tested these products with, like, you know, why are they not paying attention to this? Like, why have they, they tried to fix this problem? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think everyone is doing their best. Um, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Stability is not a new, you know, issue. Um, we talk about it a lot in the industry. Problem is that the solutions to date, which have been things like airless pumps and amber bottles, mixing, for instance, vitamin C molecules, compounding them with other molecules that might help stabilize them, all of those things actually do slow down the rate of degradation, but it doesn't eradicate it, right? And so I applaud, you know, those initiatives and innovations because they've certainly made these products better. But I think like instead of just iterating and improving, I think we sort of need to like leapfrog and rethink the way that we do this. I mean, in some ways it's it's very modern and it's very new and it's very inventive, but it's also actually just a modern interpretation of the way we used to do things, right? Estheticians used to compound these 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 uh, ingredients in the moment. Pharmacists, particularly in Europe, used to compound these in the moment. And, you know, obviously with mass manufacturing and starting to move into retail distribution and other things, supply chain shifted and, and the way that we actually, you know, take these products in has changed. But so it's, it's a bit of reversion to the past, um, obviously dressed up in a, in a very sort of modern and, and inventive kind of way. It's so funny. I feel like that's probably true for so many things. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Like we all think it's something that's brand new and like, oh my God, this has never been done before. And it's like, actually, we used to do it this way until we messed up and we did it all wrong. And now we're going back, actually. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, we traded convenience uh, and sort of scalable distribution with efficacy. I, I think we're in a new situation where we can have both. At least that's the exponent gamble. So that's awesome. So, Kind of going back to the business really quick and entrepreneurship, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced? Obviously launching in April, you guys have been around for only a few months. It's still early days, but you're, you know, you're a seasoned founder, you know, shit hits the fan all the time. So what are some of the things that have been some of the most challenging moments? I know R&D was probably a challenge, but just in general, you know, what are some things that you had to overcome recently? Yeah. And certainly the R&D project was challenging just in and of itself because it's a highly unusual uh, form factor and highly unusual packaging. But obviously, a lot of the lion's share of the R&D lift was happening during the pandemic. And so on top of that, it really limited our ability to do fast iterations with consumer focus groups. I remember at one point, we had like V5 of the prototype, um, and I was driving around San Francisco and like in a mask, dropping it off on people's steps uh, so that they could like take it and use it for a few days and then give us feedback. Whereas normally you would be in product iteration, like all in one room, kind of discussing it and sort of having just faster turns. So that was unfortunate. Similar to that, uh, our industrial engineer couldn't actually be on the line at our manufacturer um, during that iteration period either. And with, uh, you know, hardware or physical goods, uh, again, that limits the turns that you have um, on iterating around the product. Um, so instead, we would have to wait for samples to get shipped, us to test them, give feedback, you know, so. Such a long process. You have to be like so patient. Did you ever feel really discouraged? Like, is this ever going to work? Am I ever going to have a product to sell anybody? You know, if you, when were some of the low points in that in that process? Yeah, Absolutely. Definitely got a little depressed a, a few different times where it just felt like waiting for Godot, waiting for Godot, things are taking longer. And, and I'm somebody who thrives on getting a product out there and having consumers and seeing how Momentum. consumers are interacting with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just versus like, I felt like at one point I was just sitting in my home office, like in my own head, you know, um, which is which is always kind of crazy. And I'm sure a lot of people felt that way during the pandemic anyway. Uh, so that was that was super challenging. I think, you know, obviously coming into a launch in April 
we're launching, you know, after the iOS changes, right? So there's digital marketing uh, constraints already that everyone's feeling, right? But as a new brand, having to kind of contend with. And then, of course, with the macro environment shifting so considerably in like May and June, it's just kind of a hilarious cluster of timing um, around everything that's happening. So uh, good news is just like a great team around me who has sort of like seen these patterns before. And so we're keeping the shift very steady. But yeah, kind of an unusual time, I would say, to launch a new brand. It's so tough. I mean, I'm I'm so impatient. I feel like that's one of my weaknesses is I'm a little impatient and I also thrive off of momentum. So as soon as things start to slow down or if like I have an idea with someone and they're like, yeah, let's go do it. And they kind of like fade away. I'm like, what's going on? And the next thing I know, I'm like, yep, oh, next thing, you know, like totally. it's yeah. so annoyed when people can't run as fast. Absolutely. And I think for me, I get a lot of energy from like my team and being around people. And because the R&D process was longer, it was really just me, like working with partners, obviously, um, but no team around me. And obviously coming out of my my Red Door sort of turnaround experience and Manicube and, um, you know, just being around people, being able to like bounce ideas off each other, it just, it felt pretty lonely, I would say. Yeah. And are you a solo founder on this one? On this one? I am. Yes. <gasps> and and this is after two previous businesses where I was a co-founder, right? So that's also coming into play where, uh, you know, you just have, you know, fewer brainstorm opportunities, bounce ideas off each other. Both of my co-founder relationships in the past have been some of the best relationships in my life. Um, and I mean, still best friends today. Um, and so I definitely miss that. I think um, the good news is I have so many fabulous, particularly female friends uh, who are in similar positions, who are starting their first companies, maybe starting their second, including my most recent co-founder. And so uh, you do have support there and we, we do create like kind of opportunities to, to help each other. Yeah, absolutely. That camaraderie with other founders and those conversations can be so incredibly valuable. And so what are some of the things that you did? Uh, that's probably one of them reaching out and talking to and, and building kind of a community of other entrepreneurs to help you kind of get through. But what are some other things that do you have like a morning routine? Do you have like, what kind of helped you going through that time of like, is this product ever going to be done? You know, like that kept you going, like what kept you going? How did you, you know, yeah. get through it? Well, I mean, I think, I think from just, uh, you know, physical perspective your physical uh, health obviously is a huge part of this and because there's more than enough work to do you could just be doing that all day and so um, committing to like a pretty solid exercise routine uh, was was a big part of that and I think something I also learned from previous uh, founding experiences is just you can get sucked up in these kind of like reactive tactical needs and so carving out time in your schedule for sort of the important but not urgent keeps you kind of focused on, okay, I can answer these 10 emails or I can take an hour to do the retailer deck that I intended to do last week. Um, and that's really important to pushing the business further. And then beyond that, and and this is also not just for me, but, but perhaps advice that's hopefully useful um, for others, like I think you need to really be clear with yourself on why you're doing this, right? And, and people have all different reasons, you know, like they say, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? Um, I would say, do you want to be rich? Do you want to be king? Or do you want to be the leader of a movement, right? Because I think that is also a very exciting world to live in. And I know a lot of people who feel very strongly there. I think for me, I think of this brand and this skincare line and creating this new category in clinical skincare as like truly my penance for just having been a huge part of the problem. I spent years talking a lot of products that it turns out were over-promising and under-delivering, and that doesn't feel good. So I feel deeply that the industry needs to evolve, needs to have better definitions and better claims around the efficacy of these products. And if Exponent can be a part of that, that that's incredible. Yeah, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. You have to have that why. We talk about that a lot on the show, that that helps people going. Right. What's, what um, Have you guys fundraised? Have you fundraised at all? We have. Uh, we actually raised a pre-seed round in the fall of 2020. As you can imagine, in creating a new invention uh, is a little bit more costly than like pulling down a library formulation from a contract manufacturer. And so very, very fortunate to have incredible investors who wanted to back this sort of wildly crazy idea and um, to take on the calcified incumbents in the industry. And yeah, 
Uh, so that we closed that round a couple of years ago. And how was your experience fundraising? Um, what challenges did you kind of face with trying to do something so different? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, explaining the problem statement, right, in the industry, again, it depends on the investor. We have some um, firms that are deep, deep, deep into beauty. So, you know, understanding the why and understanding the solution, it was more obvious to them that this was a bit of an innovation play, right? and an invention play. Um, and then you have other investors who sort of bring different perspective to the table, maybe think about it as more of a hardware play or even kind of a B2B opportunity potentially down the road. So it's just kind of making sure you've got the right select group of people to be talking to and you're sort of hitting all of those points. I think if you, you know, look, who knows if Expona will be a huge success or not. I'm obviously hopeful it will be. But I think Investors get excited about, you know, huge growing categories that can be very profitable and that have logical exits. And if you can do something truly differentiated in that space, that's exciting. Yeah. And with this being your third business, looking back on your businesses, how do you think about like what makes a great entrepreneur? Like if there's people tuning in, I know the the normal things like grit, resilience, don't give up, you know, like all those things. But like what maybe what are some other like skill set? things or personality traits that you think make a, a strong entrepreneur? I mean, I think it's, and I'm obviously not perfect myself and so always trying to flex these muscles, but like, I think it takes a very specific personality to be able to, you know, see the high level strategy, but still be the individual contributor doing the grunt work. Like I think about when I was like barbiciding manicure tools, like the first your manicure in my bathtub and like making sure those supplies got out there or like we had a VIP order that came in two days ago and I had to like box it up and get it over to mailboxes etc um, but at the same time my number one job is to create stability for my incredible team because you can't do everything alone and so making sure you can do both of those things is is critically important I think honestly that to me the things that have uh led to the most success generally is, is a just like maniacal focus on high standards around hiring to be honest like you need the best people around you um, and by the best people it's not necessarily the most skilled the most experienced it's the people who are flexible in mindset and who can bring a lot of different sort of general skills to some degree in addition to whatever specific skills and the reason for that is like when you're a startup you put a job description out there because you have to have something that people will react to. But like the reality is opportunities and ideas are going to shift uh, what we need to get done. And so the special type of person who can sort of ebb and weave and flex in that way. Uh, and, and that typically tends to be like lifelong learners more so than anything else. And then I think entrepreneurs have to like really balance between the optimism and the realism. Right. Um, and there's, there are different types too, right? Because I've seen different personalities that, that kind of walk this line in different ways. I mean, there's something kind of crazy about just like jumping off a cliff and, you know, being okay with that, right? Not everyone can do it. And that's the optimistic view. But also having plan B, plan C and a certain amount of focus is really important. It is so true. You walk this line of like, you have to be optimistic enough, crazy enough to go pursue something without much data saying it'll even remotely work, you know, and it's so high risk. But then you also have to be realist enough to kind of say, is this like, oh, going to actually work out like realistically without your head in the clouds, you kind of have to be also grounded. It's, it is such an interesting balance and you have to be able to almost like turn on and turn off each of those <laughs> with different Literally. things. Totally. Yeah. Nice. Amp up the vision and the optimism when you're fundraising, when you're yeah, or, you know, or talking or to your, yeah, yeah, for the team, for sure, you know, and giving them that energy. And, um, and that's why I think when you look at entrepreneurs, there are certain entrepreneurs who are more like vision or creative or tech, but a little less interested necessarily in like building the culture of the business. And th those aren't necessarily things that, that need to go together either. Right. And so thinking about which type you are before you start the journey is probably useful as well. Did you take any tests, like assessment tests, behavioral tests, like anything like that to kind of know where you are on that? I have over the years, just like in various, you know, school settings um, or corporate settings. 
I don't even really remember what the results were. I always found that the, the best use of those was to create like common language with which you could actually communicate with your team members, um, depending on which framework it was. Um, exactly. Yep. Team dynamics. Those things. Yeah. Can be more yeah. so. I, I never really felt like I was reading something that, you know, surprised me about right, myself. That you didn't already know. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But useful to kind of understand how that meshes, uh, you know, with executive team members or, or other team members. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Really excited about what you're building and um, really appreciate it. So right before we wrap, do you have any final advice for aspiring entrepreneurs and what's next for the brand? What can we see coming soon? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, for aspiring entrepreneurs, I guess, and I think it's, it's what we were talking about before, just like being true to why you're doing it. That has to be your you know North Star and when times are tough and they will be tough. That's the other part of it, right? This is not glamorous at all. There are ups and downs all around. Um, and I would actually say for anyone who is a multi-time founder, I have a lot of empathy because it's actually a lot harder to dive into the unknown once you've already done it. Because you it's know so that true, there's something coming jaded. around the corner. Yeah, you're like... yeah. I know that there's a car crash somewhere up ahead. I just don't know what it is, but I know right. it's coming, right? And so it's yeah. a very different emotional. It's it's like you have to undo the negative thoughts of fear instead of like when you're naive, go doing something for the first time, ignorance is bliss. Completely. And then of course, you know, every every coin has two sides. So the flip side of that is you do have much better pattern recognition at this point. Um, and you sort of don't sweat the small stuff as much. I know kind of, away but it's true and so it's more your like emotional baggage that kind of comes into play so and in terms of exponent and what we have got going on definitely come check us out and um, we've got these five unbelievable anti-aging serums on exponentbeauty.com we do have new products uh, in the works that are coming out next year and i won't delve into details there but our whole entire premise is taking fantastic ingredients and innovating on form factors. So we're delivering the best clinical results to you. And so this new product that we're working on takes a very different ingredient approach and a very different form factor approach. And it's, I'm very excited about it. With so a new we base, all have to tell you about it. Sounds it. like it's actually, it's a completely different form factor. It has nothing yeah. to do with powders. It has nothing to do with the current system. It's a way for us to formulate with, with stable but large molecular weights to drive better penetration into the skin. Very scientific. We're going to have to... More to come. Yes, I like. will tell you immediately That's about amazing. it once we, once we have more. Yeah. Well, congratulations on all of your success so far. Thanks again so much for sharing your story and being on the show with us today. Thank you, Lee. I really appreciate it. It's been a blast. And I can't wait for you to uh, become a master mixologist as a self-activated skincare user. Absolutely. I'm excited. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing. <laughs>